Do you travel often, perhaps to foreign places where you do not speak the language? Well, this week's giveaway is for you. Thanks to our partner, Beta, this week we will be giving away three Pocket Talk voice translators. The Pocket Talk makes communicating with someone that speaks a different language super easy and enjoyable. It supports up to 74 languages and uses built-in mobile data to provide two-way foreign language translations in real time. Enter this week's giveaway for a chance to win a free Pocket Talk voice translator by going to www.mission.org giveaway or try it out at your nearby beta store. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Mission producer Austin Craig is joined by Dr. Carl Van de Weijer, who serves as the head of Strategic Area Smart Mobility at Indover University of Technology. With an expertise in the future of mobility, Carlo advises governments and industries around the world. He is a faculty member at the Singularity University, where he discusses exponential technologies such as smart mobility and how it will shape our future. On this episode, Austin sits down with Dr. Carl Van de Weijer to highlight future trends within mobility, from electric bikes to self-driving cars and their impact on society. Carlo, thank you so much for taking your time to speak with us today. We're very excited to have you on. My pleasure. Let's begin with a brief introduction. Why don't you tell me uh, your name and your title, and then we'll start talking a little bit about your career and history. Okay, my name is Carlo Verweer. I work at the Technical University of Eindhoven, where I'm responsible for all the mobility research. Next to that, I'm, uh, I work at some stuff, work with some startup companies, um, but also I'm a faculty member of Singularity University in Silicon Valley uh, for transport and mobility for future. You're the director for smart mobility at Eindhoven University. How long has that group existed? Actually, it's now for five, six years. The university were looking uh, to get a little bit more recognition of being a university working on societal issues. Uh, so they hired some people from business or asked them to come to work part-time for the university and that, on societal issues like energy, health, and smart mobility. And I worked in the automotive industry back then. I was the lucky one to, uh, to be selected for the mobility. I'm already there for five, six, seven years. Well, let's talk a little bit about your career history. Self-driving technology, a driverless future is something that people are talking about a lot today. It is very top of mind for anybody in the technology world or transportation, but that hasn't always been the case. You've been in transportation long enough that you've seen this emerge. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of the space and when this started to become a serious part of the conversation? Yeah, actually, uh, maybe if you go back a long time, even before you and me existed, actually, the word automobile literally means self-driving uh, in Latin. So if you tell about self-driving automobile, you you're talking about a self-driving self-driver, which actually indicates that from the beginning of when we invented the automobiles, the, the automobile kept on taking over more and more of our function. It started with, of course, uh, the drivetrain, uh, but at a certain moment we had power steering and you have the cruise control and more and more of these functions have been taken over. Now, actually, what's happening at this moment is that there are some very interesting steps happening that they are not only taking over the work that we do with our feet which cruise control actually did, or with with our arms, where we have now some self-steering. And now they're also in sometimes taking over our minds. And that's an essential thing. Uh, we are about now to see that every now and then, maybe for longer drives, the car will take over the control. And that's a fundamental difference to all the, the functions that they took over in the last decades of actually since the existing of the first automobile. 
And it's actually something that I worked on already in my previous career. I always worked at the automotive business, uh, large parts in Siemens, in the last 12 years at TomTom. And although TomTom is very well known for the GPS systems, actually what they're mainly focusing on at this moment is to make actually self-driving or autonomous drive modes happening with more detailed maps. So I've been in that discussion already for maybe a decade now. So maybe a decade now. I think a lot of people in that time have become aware of this space. They become aware of the idea of self-driving and they envision a future where you press a button on your phone, a car shows up, you step inside and it takes you smoothly to the next door that you need to enter across town. It's my understanding that you've had a little bit of skepticism that we will see that or that we will see that soon. Yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, the actually thing is that uh, this, this kind of horizontal elevator, uh, what, what you're actually talking about, so a car that doesn't have a wheel, that doesn't have even controls to take over control, uh, that, that's, that's a future vision actually not so much for the last decades. You see this popping up already early in history as well. One of the most important things that you're missing there is, is actually what problem that you're solving with the new kind of system. And of course, it would be a fantastic way of being able to transport yourself. But will it be better than the current system? That's, that's the question that, that hasn't been asked too often. And of course, a lot of people say that there's, of course, safety concerns. Self-driving vehicles will not make accidents. To my point of view, that's just an example of an argument that, that, that is probably not going to work because just suppose that there is technology. I think there will be technology in due course that will be able to fully, for a full safe drive. Why don't then not apply this kind of technology on the other vehicles that still have a driver? Uh, so as a kind of shadow driver that just makes sure that you don't make an accident. So I think this inherently safe vehicle technology will not be only reserved for self-driving vehicles. This, I think all vehicles will be inherently safe. So that's, to my point of view, not, one, not the problem that you hear most often, but it will not be the problem that will be the breakthrough for the self-driving kind of uh, vehicles. All the other applications that you hear about from, if you start sharing cars, etc., then it will be cheaper. Yes, that's true, but I don't think that cars will be expensive enough in order to get these shared vehicle systems going. That's, I think the future car will be too cheap to share. And that's the thing. And there are some other problems that you surely will solve with self-driving vehicles. To my point of view, we still have some fundamental problems to tackle that will be worse than the advantages of having this full self-driving vehicle kind of mobility system. So what kinds of problems will this produce that we don't face today? And the one thing is that, of course, that, that to my point of view, if, if we, and I do really believe in the future of, of almost inherently safe vehicles, inherently clean kind of mobility, then the, the new battle will be the battle for space, uh, certainly in urban areas and in big cities. The battle for space will be the thing. And then you are looking for high capacity kind of transport systems, like transit, but also like, like the more active mobilities like walking and, and, and biking, actually. That's the solutions that you're looking for if you have battle for space, not for cars that drive around other people. Yes, you, you, will, you would theoretically need less parking space, but still on the road, this very low capacity kind of individual transport of, of these kind of vehicles will not be the best solutions for the problems that we are facing in the future. So you, you might end up with uh, even more people taking the cars, which for space reasons is not always the best option. You've said before that we're looking forward to a future of smart vehicles on dumb roads. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the general idea as I understand yep. it. 
what you're also saying is that we may see an increase in traffic because more people will get in their cars because it's more convenient. There's not a physical or cognitive load to travel from here to there. What kind of changes will we see on our roadways and infrastructure, or if we're going to be able to handle an increased traffic load? Yeah, that's it's it's the most important question indeed. And there's a lot of uh, also the road authorities uh, think about this question: Do we need to adapt our roads for self-driving vehicles, or autonomous vehicles, or any smart vehicle that's coming up? That's what I already preset. That if you look at actually all systems, that uh, a very clever system normally uh, is a very intelligent service and clients. And that's what you also see through in the internet, which was based initially on the a 200 years old copper network for phone lines, etc., and it just used that, which made it entirely scalable with very smart clients and servers. That's how you have a, a, a very clever system. And uh, just in parallel, if you see at the roads, then probably the roads need no adaptation in order to host self-driving vehicles. They should not be dependable on that. Of course, they will need broadband internet connection, etc. But that's probably hitchhiking on the cell network that's going to be anyhow there. I do not really foresee that we have a, uh, uh, a specific infrastructure needed, which is very expensive, for self-driving vehicles. But what you said is, is very true. Um, one effect of, for instance, cars taking over control through traffic jam during a traffic jam, which by the way, is one of the most easy things to do, a traffic jam on a highway where there probably will not be many pedestrians or bikes, etc. It's rather predictable. It's at low speed. It's not very dangerous. Not a lot of accidents happen there, just maybe because people are not noticing. But that's the first thing where you see driverless vehicles taking over. And if people do not mind the traffic jam so much anymore, something that we measured already in, uh, in some research uh, on, on these people. If you have a car taking over the traffic jam, you do not mind traffic jam anymore. If you do not mind traffic jam anymore, you're not going to hunt for alternative routes or you're not going to play around or trying to, to shift your starting time at work. You're not going to check your traffic jam so much anymore. So, uh, yeah, people will put less effort in order to prevent being in a traffic jam. That means traffic jam might grow. And the other effect is that that might also make a shift from public transport to, to, to even more people in cars if you take out this problem of traffic jams. So it's solving the congestion problem, not by solving the congestion, but by solving the problem that people have with it. And this is happening quite fast. In California, hardly any car is being sold without this function of that it's being able to take over control in a traffic jam. And that means more traffic jams in the future, I fear. Will our conception of a car change? Could we, could we relieve traffic by having maybe a vehicle that is smaller, that is more streamlined on, on wider roads, right? Make narrower lanes on the existing real estate. Yeah, it is. But on itself, if you solve the problem, then the more traffic might not be the worst thing to do. At the, at, at the, uh, people complain always a lot about traffic jams. Actually, the, the problem of traffic jams is much smaller than the, than the other traffic problems like pollution, but certainly the, the limited safety, uh, the actions that happen cost society much, much, much more than, than what traffic jam costs us. So at certain we should also prevent from mining the, the enormous amount of traffic jams. Widening the roads as a start is not the solution. So widening roads, putting more asphalt, it's uh, to just add more capacity. That's uh, like a fat man uh, loosening his belt in order to prevent obesity. Now, people that really want to lose weight, narrow 
their belt, you know, and not just to keep on being reminded that there's another problem than, uh, than capacity. And that's what we should really see. I think at a certain moment, you should just release it and, and see that people will start using more sensible ways of living instead of being in a traffic jam or actually use other modalities. You just should accept that you're in a traffic jam. If you can do work, etc., also the cost of traffic jams for society will further go down. That's, that's a very interesting thing actually already happening today that road authorities and governments are starting thinking about should we really uh, calculate all the damage from, from congestions as we used to do it because maybe the costs are much lower than people thought so far. Uh, so not building extra roads, uh, have a higher level of acceptance of, uh, of, of congestion. The good thing is that if you look at the future jobs, I think just working at a certain place and living somewhere else, this traditional model of commuter traffic, uh, I, there's a fair chance that might also disappear for a fair share in the future. So should we still work from nine to five, uh, work very far from our home? If you look at all the new jobs that are popping up there, they come with a lot of more flexibility. So I, I foresee a much more sensible way of using your driving time per day than as we are doing it now. You mentioned other modalities of getting around and, and it's appropriate to mention again that you're not necessarily hyper-focused on driverless technology. You're, you're focused on smart mobility. Can you tell us about those other modalities and how those will factor into the transportation of the future? Yeah, being from the Netherlands, of course, important to, to talk about the bikes as well. Now, we, we have kind of a healthy bike system. And we are not, by the way, the most dry country in the world. On the contrary, I think, we, if you haven't been to the Netherlands, you probably will have catched some rain. We have snow in the winter, etc. And it doesn't keep us from using the bike as number one modality. And it's actually also, if you look at a worldwide scale, it's the fastest growing modality if you count the number of trips. At this moment. So, so biking is a very sensible thing to do because it's a win-win-win situation. Actually, for government, it's budget neutral. They have to invest in infrastructure for bikes. But the fact that your inhabitants will be much more healthy, it saves all governments on medical costs in due course. So that's, that's actually a, a kind of break-even. So it's, it's a modality that comes for free. Uh, there's a lot of to be gained for companies because you have a healthier workforce. If you look at the, the, the community societies that first concentrate on people having their commute by a bike, it, it delivers by far the best system on, on any performance uh, index. There's one thing happening there that you see this breakthrough of electric bikes. Actually, without any subsidy, you see that the number of electric bikes being sold worldwide is, is 10 to 20 times more. Is it come up as the electric car? So that's, that's actually something that's happening somewhere in the shade of the electric car breakthrough you see these electric bikes coming through and, and there's an essential thing that also in the somewhat hotter regions and in the more hilly environments where you still have to climb and uh, descend actually this used to be a problem because you will all be sweaty when you come at work but with electric bikes most of this disadvantage is also being countered and normally this happened at uh, a five kilometer commute commute but now with the electric bikes you see this is going up to 11 12 kilometers on the public transport side, you see also interesting things popping up. And actually, I see as a future public transport that it's going to be more demand-driven. This traditional system that is completely uh, uh, just driving with a bus from a predefined route on a predefined time 
from pole to pole where you hope there's no customers there because they're just going to damage your, uh, your your service, I said, really, because it's, uh, your, your, your timing is going to be under pressure if there's some people over there. Now, that's 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 going to disappear. I think the future public transport will rather look like a kind of Uber or Uber than, than it will be as, as the current system. And there's a lot to gain there as well. But, yeah, public transport always comes with a cost. Public transport, as wonderful as it is in many situations, doesn't really help all that much with the last mile situation, with the getting to the door that you are going to. And things like scooters and bikes that you've been talking about, those seem to be a fundamental solution to that. They're, they're so personal and so tailored for taking you exactly where you need to go. All of this, I'm sure you're, you're, you're developing and learning at Eindhoven University with your students. Can you tell me about the work and the research that you do there? What, what are your students doing on a regular basis on any given day? A lot that we don't know of, and that's mostly probably most of the most interesting work they're doing, actually. But I, I, actually, it seems to be like uh, normal for all the students to just start their business, uh, especially the modality students. We have here the first car that you can buy, and you can buy it in, uh, in half, one, one year from now, that runs on solar energy. So it's a strange kind of designed car, very fuel efficient, that works on solar energy. So that, that's, that's a very interesting breakthrough, actually, especially because we are used to have all this charging infrastructure, but there's a lot of countries in the Middle East and Africa, et cetera, that don't have a charging industry, and this might be a very good solution for that. I ordered one myself, but that's, that's not the last mile solution that you're asking for. Of course, you come then to the, the system of sh- uh, shared cars, shared bikes, all this kind of system. In the Netherlands, it's normal that you drive to the station. If you go by public transport, that you drive to the station with your own bike, because the average Dutchman has 1.4 bikes. So we have more bikes than people here in the country. But then they go by train on bus, etc. And we have this very large sharing system of uh, public service bikes at the station. So you can do the last mile. The scooters, there's a big discussion on the scooters as well. And often it replaces walking. Replacing walking is, of course, not the intention. But you see more and more that because of this last mile transport, that also people take mass transit so that's actually the biggest advantage of these individual modes and uh yeah you see this popping up also all, all around the world um it's 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 i'm not sure what's going to happen with this good wheels have a startup with these electric scooters they cost kind of a lot of energy in order to build and then they should last for longer than a year and as you see now that they just last for less than half a year the, the sharing makes our uh, make, makes people not uh, very careful with these bikes so they have to last a little bit longer for me to be really an interesting modality. But this can happen in the future when they're a little bit more rigid. Uh, but yeah, there's um, actually in Austin, uh, this huge study has come out because Austin is the leading capital of, of electric scooters, especially during the South by Southwest. And uh, you see that actually now uh, the average scooter is just being used for 1.8 times per day. And then still don't last longer than a couple of months, say five, six, seven months. That's not a closed business case. So I'm very curious if they're ever going to close this business case in the future. It's always difficult to have this last mile transport organized well. Maybe we should accept that we just walk and try to make as flexible as possible a kind of, of public transport system that takes you as close as possible to where you want to have. Yeah, if we were walking more often, I think we'd probably solve a lot of other problems as well. In addition to transportation, we'd be a healthier people generally. It is. It is. We, we went started walking, of course. And that's maybe an essential thing. If you look at mobility, 
A lot of people say it's just a means to go from A to B. And this is a fundamental thing that I keep on saying, that mobility is a purpose on its own. Somewhere in evolution, it happened that we left our cave and started walking around in order to go hunting and gathering. And it has been defined somewhere in, uh, in evolution that the most optimal time span of being mobile is a little bit more than one hour. And that, that's actually because walking around all day was not a too sensible way in order to use your energy. So probably the optimum apparently is somewhere above one hour. And that's still what makes us most happy. So for in some reason, we're most happy to have an average, if you count over the entire week or month or whatever, to have an average time span consumed for mobility for a little bit more than one hour. And we just design our lives, et cetera, in such a way that, that it will end up with that. And that's a very good thing to say. It used to be walking only. That's, by the way, how our body is engineered. In, in one hour and six minutes, that's about this, this 10,000 steps that's most healthy to us that, that really correlates very closely to having this a little bit more than one hour per day. Uh, but actually what we did in history is we just invented other modalities. We just used to, to, to ride horses. So we learned to how to ride horses, et cetera. And that just increased our range. That's the only thing it did. It didn't uh, limit the amount of time that we were traveling. It just increased our range. And that's actually what kept on being happen with, happening with all these new modalities. And uh, we should always ask if we just invest in making connections quicker, et cetera, is it beneficial, beneficial for economy or societal reasons that people just go further? Because that's the only effect that you will achieve by either solving congestion, making trains more faster, making whatever you do faster. People will not travel less time. They just will travel further. And yes, there might be some economical or societal benefit behind that, but often that's not the case. And we should, so that's a question that's not being asked enough. Are there other questions that aren't being asked enough? What are people anticipating or assuming that they're probably wrong about? Yeah, that's true. I always keep on asking from what problem are you solving with this one? And that's, yeah, that, that's, for instance, with the self-driving future, a lot of people say, yeah, we need that because now people die in traffic. And yes, they're so right that we should not accept that people die in traffic. To my point of view, that's another thing of self-driving vehicles. That's, it is a thing of adding even more technology to our cars. We added already a lot of technology to cars that prevented a lot of people to die. So that, that's a good thing. We should even add more technology. And this is technology that might also be able to drive the car itself. But I don't think it will lead to a driverless vehicle because I've, the main point there is that a driverless vehicle will be too overcautious. And the overcautiousness will probably stop it. This overcautiousness is a fundamental thing. That's because these cars will not be programmed to flexibly interpret the law. And flexibly interpreting the law is necessary in order to survive everyday traffic. Uh, even in the United States, where you all drive so very nice, decently in the same direction, don't change lanes too much, etc., etc. Well organized, not too many bikes, etc. It's relatively easy to drive there. If you come to Europe, it's a different picture. Driving is like following a lot of unwritten rules. And it's very hard to program unwritten rules. And yes, you can learn this machine learning and, and, and all this, this clever technology in the future to also understand these unwritten rules. But then yet, should we have robots just work and fill in their own unwritten rules? That's a very dangerous no-go area to my point of view. And yeah, are we also going to replace these social contacts and all this, this kind of things? By, by robots. I don't think we are going to, somebody's waiting for that. 
So these are some things that a lot of people always think. If, if somebody starts a sentence when, in the future, when we have self-driving vehicles, comma, most of the times then kind of a lot of nonsense will follow. Uh, like uh, that we have no accidents, for instance, that, that you don't have to insure because there are no accidents. Now, 50% of the accidents here, at least in the Netherlands, happen when the vehicles in a standstill. So yeah, when it's vandalized or storm damage or something or somebody else runs into so that's a, a shopping cart runs into it all these kind of things that's not going to disappear so you still need insurance so yeah a lot of overestimation think again what's the real problem that you want to solve with a certain technology and yeah does does it need such a complex uh, solution that's a really good point, not just here, but in really any discussion of technology. What is the real problem we're trying to solve here? Starting from first principles can, can produce much better answers. When more autonomous or level four or level five autonomy comes uh, in the nomenclature, mm-hmm. when that arrives, I think it will converge with some other trends that we are seeing, at least in the United States. Recreational vehicles are becoming more and more popular. We're seeing a resurgence that hasn't happened since the 1950s, where people want to be on the road, go to see different places, go to national parks. Uh, younger consumers are valuing experiences over physical belongings. You know, yeah, a car used to be a very treasured uh, item. It was something that you would spend your weekends tuning up and shining and polishing so you could show it off. Now people want to go to a national park, go to some site to have an experience. And uh, the economy is increasingly fueled by remote information workers, and we have high bandwidth, high broadband systems coming right over the horizon where people can work remotely for virtually everything they need to do. If I don't have to be the one at the wheel driving me to some amazing national park, and I can instead tell my car that I want to wake up and see the sun rise over Yosemite National Park, then why might I not do that into perpetuity? Why might I not do that for a long, long time? It seems like that would be something that a lot of people would be interested in. But maybe there's flaws in my logic here. Is that plausible? And would you then perpetually live in it while it's driving or live in it as a sort of recreational vehicle that you're moving house, as by the way, a lot of retired people in, in, in the United States already used to do, uh, to my perception. But, but do you think it, it don't mind if I don't have to drive? I don't mind having it driving me around while I'm doing whatever. Is that what you yeah. mean? Yeah. For something like a motorhome or a recreational vehicle, you could be yeah, in yeah, the back. Sure. Now, by the way, with all the, the, the things that you said, there's a lot of things you, you are right. People tend to shift from possession to using this thing. Uh, I don't own CDs anymore. I have Spotify. No. Uh, I actually, I share my music with anyone because I just pick it out of the cloud whenever I want it to have. That's one big difference with this one and sharing cars. But why own a car if you just have access to the car? So let, let me start with this one, the sharing thought. Um, what we talked about already for 20 years and it's not really lifting off yet. Uh, two problems with that one. With, with, with one thing, uh, when I used to try and find a song uh, on, that I had on a CD, took me at least two minutes before I found it, you know. You, you have your CDs on alphabetical order, not. And then as soon as you have found it, then the CD was in the car or something, or there was a wrong CD in the box, etc. But okay, if you found it, you push number seven, that's the song. So your access, actually, 
improved when I moved to Spotify because now I want a song. It takes me about seven seconds probably to find it, you know? So also the access improved by sharing music, picking it out of the cloud instead of owning my CDs. If you have a car for yourself, your access is quite rapid unless you live in a city and you need to park it around the corner, etc. But not, yeah, a lot of people live in urbanized areas, but not in that kind of dense cities that you have to go look for it. But okay, in normal situation, you just have access to your car. If you just exchange that for a shared car, you want to have immediate access just if you had. You don't have to want to wait five minutes or 10 minutes, especially if you want to take your kid to the hospital or whatever have you. And that, that's a thing that might block actually this thing. The other thing is what also being supported by the fact that people still like recreational vehicles is something biological that's kind of deep in our senses that a lot of people tend to see their car as an extension of their cave, which still happens. It, you can leash your, 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 your stuff in it. It smells like you, you know, it, uh, you can just handle it as just as you want. Huh? So either polish it every day or not, just as, as you wish to do so. And that's a thing where, where, which, which should not be underestimated. It answers to a lot of the biological things like being able to escape, uh, to, to store stuff of yourself. It's a protection even against, against uh, lightning, you know. That, that's, that's all kind of things that make us feel safe. And this extension of your cave thought is a little bit deeper than a lot of people estimate. Having said that, you see a shift from people owning their own car from just private leasing one or something or trying to get some more sharing or maybe share your second car. And there's a lot of interesting business models behind it that I would see happening. But I come back to the most fundamental thing is that independent from how we travel, how active we travel, uh, we do not want to travel much more than one hour per day. We're most happy with a 20 minutes commuter time that adds up to 40 minutes of commuting and still leaves some time for leisure or groceries, etc. If you're full service, flying first class, etc., you do not mind traveling a little bit longer. That's true. But it doesn't mean that we want to travel forever. Also, when you're being driven by public transport and you don't have to do anything, people do not want to spend their entire day. They try to commute for 20, 25 minutes to the max. That's what makes them most happy. It's independent from whether you drive yourself or being driven, etc. That's a fundamental thing why I see this system that I also every now and then dream of, 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 of people just driving around, etc., uh, perpetually being on the road, etc. Might not happen. This one hour and a bit will also be in the future the reference. It happened somewhere in evolution. We had our last software update about 50,000 years ago, and it's probably more or less still what drives our reptile brain on legs kind of human beings that we are. That's an interesting angle that I had not considered the, the biological propensity for wanting to be in one place or wanting to travel. It always comes down to this. It's, it's even, it has a scientific name. It's called Marchetti's constant. It's the first professor to find that out. And it's still valid. One hour and six minutes, he says. Well, that's just useful information to have for any of us who have a commute. Try to plan something that doesn't take longer than that. And it is. And that's also what probably to my point of view will also, uh, maybe it will pull us out of these big cities. There's in London, you have an average commute of one and a half hour, just one way. That doesn't make people happy. You have to say, I'm, I'm in Silicon Valley a lot. You see in San Francisco, the normal personal, the bar attendants, the hairdressers, etc. They cannot afford a house in San Francisco. They have a commute of one and a half hour. That doesn't make them happy. It's 
it's suboptimal. A distributed system of relatively small cities actually work much better on the mobility system than this huge concentration of, of people in a city. Yeah, I can anecdotally confirm that about London. I was in London for about five months at the end of 2017 through the winter, and I did not love taking the tube everywhere. The enchantment of that system wore off pretty quickly, and uh, I liked a little bit of downtime, but didn't love being crammed in there with a lot of other people uh, in the dark often uh, or with... And a lot of people have said, yeah, but in the future, you can be brought around with self-driving vehicles. The system of that you're just being picked up somewhere and just put off somewhere else, this horizontal elevator. Just imagine that you have these bubbles or what have you kind of taxis for five people doing this service. If you have to commute all the people in London with these kind of service, 5% of people in London would make use of such a taxi service of these uh, overcautious vehicles. You would have to be a total block of the city. You don't have the capacity with this kind of system. You need these very high... Uh, high density commuting kind of systems and actually the only thing that can commute with metro are buses especially the buses rapid transit system that you see a lot of successful applications in uh, in South America but also don't underestimate the bike lane a bike lane can also transport and thousands of people in one direction if you make it wide enough it probably performs better than a public transport system even if you look at the capacity so maybe in, in london in london you should just put asphalt on all these tubes and have the people bicycle through them and you also don't have to mind all the rain that you get there yeah i, I probably should have been taking a bike on the sunnier days and in two in two years, by the way, and then it's also yes on sunny days, but but also on rainy days. Still, the bike is the most uh, used option. You you just it's not a bicycle problem. It's just a it's a wardrobe problem. It's not a weather problem. It's just you have to adapt your wardrobe. You know, so all the children just go by bike. Yeah, I've I've heard a Scandinavian saying before that there isn't bad weather. There's just bad clothing. That's exactly what I wanted to say there. <laughs> yeah, so it's you you can get used to it. <laughs> Believe me. The thing is that you need a lot of experts here in the Netherlands, but the children miss it if they go back to the other countries. Is that here in the Netherlands, from nine years, eight years onwards, we just give them freedom. They take their bike and go anywhere. That's how we adapt our infrastructure. That gives such an enormous amount of freedom to children that you hear from a lot of experts where the children go back when they're 12, 13, 14, and they go back to the United States or wherever in the world, that they miss this enormous liberty of just going wherever you want, go visit your friends, etc. From, from the age of six, seven, eight years onwards. And, and yeah, that's, and it's safe actually to do that. Hardly any accidents happen with this, this age category. Right. And, and we don't put helmets on. That's maybe very strange for you to think, but it also has been proven that, 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 that helmets on bikes do not really help in a country where people are used to bikes. Yeah, that's another one that has unexpected outcomes. Uh, the assumption is that everybody wearing a helmet will produce universally more safe conditions and the data doesn't totally back that assumption. It, it is. It's another discussion, of course, but uh, right. making things bike-friendly is always a good investment. Let me ask you one last question before we close our conversation. You have said before that mobility will become as cheap as running water. Does that entail yeah. that energy will become incredibly cheap? And if so, what implications will that have beyond transportation? Yeah, it's, it's, I think, to my point, a few more, one of the most interesting things that's happening at this moment. And indeed, maybe if you see which problems are self-driving, shared vehicles solving, a lot of people say, yeah, it will be much cheaper for people. But that's not the case. Cars are getting uh, so very cheap. It happens to any industry that's being digitized, where you used to pay for music, 
music is always more free. At this moment, you do not really consider the cost of your Spotify account, etc. That's that's like running tap water. Same happened actually to food and to water and to music and to photography. And now it's happening to mobility. Uh, cars, probably mainly because they're going to be electrically driven and uh, electricity is going to have, a, electric cars are going to break through mainly because they're going to be cheaper in uh, five years from now. They're going to be cheaper to operate than a conventional vehicle with all these moving parts. So you will have almost free mobility. You probably will not, it's not going to be fully free, but you're not really going to feel the difference or are using your car or not. And that, that's another thing that you don't need a shared vehicle kind of self-driving system for. But, but indeed what you say, uh, there's hardly any scientist that doubts that in due course, energy will be for almost free. The only thing is that it will be for free, like on a, on, on a place and on a time that, that you not need it. Actually, just like water. Water comes falling free from the air in the perfect quality, but that's not when and where you need it. Like with water, the main question will be how to harvest this energy and then how to transport and to uh, store it. That's the, the one million dollar question. And to my point of view, with mainly solar cells getting so cheap that at a certain moment in certain regions, it's maybe one cent per kilowatt hour in two cores or half a cent per kilowatt hour. That's almost free, actually. That's a kilowatt hour you can drive five kilometers with. What's, what's a cent then? In due course, the main question is how are we going to store and transport this energy? And to my point of view, and that's the most interesting thing I foresee in the future, it's really enthusiasmed me. In due course, we're going to have this, we're going to transfer this almost free energy into uh, hydrocarbons. And this might be very close to the current fuels that we have. Probably the big thrive behind this one and, uh, and, and, and the big pushing force is uh, probably the planes because I see no other way in order to make air transport. Uh, we're not going to stop it. Um, the only way to make that sustainable probably is to use these sun fuels because yes, you can make from electricity and CO2 and water, you can make a liter of kerosene or diesel or uh, or, or whatever. That That's going to be exciting. And in the future, probably we will have this circular kind of fuels. And, and yeah, that, that's maybe the thing that, that also motivates me to keep on also partly working at the university because, yeah, that, that's going to be a huge, huge system, of course. If, and I'm not the energy specialist, but I know this sooner or later is going to happen that we're going to have almost free energy. That's a fascinating idea and one that's probably not talked about enough of turning these clean solar energies into chemical, clean chemical energies. Uh, and yeah. that's, a, that's a whole conversation that we could have. And I would love to have that conversation sometime in the future. Carlo, thank you so much for speaking with us today and, and sharing your insights. Uh, this is something that's going to impact everybody everywhere. And it's something that I think we all need to understand a lot more than we do. Where can people learn more about you and your work and the research that you do? Of course, when you're in the Netherlands, I, I'm, a, I'm a weekly columnist in the National Financial uh, Newspaper. But if you follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn, I try to share as much as possible of the English versions. And uh, yeah, I'm traveling the world, actually. Uh, I do advise a lot of ministries and companies on the future of mobility, a lot of the automotive companies as well. But uh, try to visit a, a summit of the Singularity University. I tend to, uh, to speak at those a lot. And... Uh, yeah, I'll try to share as much as possible on YouTube and, uh, and any other channel. Thank you, Carl. It was a pleasure. Take care. My pleasure. 
Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.